Those reasons that, that I gave were for our joy and for God's glory. So there's much joy involved in being a disciple of Christ and even discipling. And one of the things I talked about as well is how the Lord uses means. He uses up us as pipelines, as it were, as sort of conduits of his grace to others, not in a salvific way, but in a, in a way that makes us, that, in, that encourages and edifies and makes us more like Christ. Week three, last week, uh, I talked about barriers, excuses, and fears in discipling. So some of those examples were, I don't want to be in a position of authority, or I don't have time. Those are two examples of excuses that I shared last week. And we, what we did is we, we shone the light of God's word on those fears and excuses and found, I hope that a lot of the time, um, some of those excuses and barriers can be dismantled by God's word. Um, so for the next few weeks, we're going to start focusing, sort of zeroing in a little bit more on uh, sort of some spe- more specific aspects of discipling, uh, like studying scripture together, reading a good book together, ministering to hurting people, uh, etc. So those are going to be some of the topics in the coming weeks. Uh, today, as I've said, the focus is really going to be on fostering personal holiness. Fostering personal holiness. So the objective then for discipling is holiness. Uh, so my goal today then for our time together is that we understand the, the, the significant place of holiness in the discipleship relationship. And we can even think together practically about how uh, our, our mutual growth in holiness takes place. So the first point then, there's just two, two fairly simple points this morning. The first point is the ultimate goal of discipling. Another way to put it is obedience. Obedience. So above everything else, discipling finally comes down to obedience to Christ's words and commands. This is the great goal of our discipling. And if that word, if you, maybe you're, you're a little bit allergic to that word, obedience or commands, please just bear with me and I hope you'll see that the scriptures are actually very clear about this. So a person can read all the Christian books in the world or read their Bible every day, um, pray with an older Christian every week, and yet if there's no, if there's no personal change, if there's no growth in holiness, it's actually all for naught. If there's no growing obedience to Christ, then that person is very likely actually not a disciple. That person is actually very likely not a true believer. So discipling is not simply about behavior modification, but about changed hearts that lead to changed lives. And I've sort of uh, stated that that truth in, in different ways over, over the last couple of weeks. Let me say it again. Discipling is not simply about behavior modification, but about changed hearts that lead to changed lives. So two reasons then why obedience is, is an important goal in any discipleship relationship. First, 
Obedience is important because God is glorified through the way we live. God is glorified in our lives when our character is increasingly more and more Christ-like. When, when our, when, when our, when our um, behavior increasingly sort of images the character of God. So if, if we call ourselves Christians, but we live in a way that is clearly contrary to God's character, then we are misrepresenting God to those around us. This is what one of the, um, sort of what is in behind the idea of, of humanity being created in God's image. We are to image forth what God is like. One of the tragedies of being uh, fallen humans outside of God's grace is we very much image forth what God is not like. And so one of the marks of a growing Christian then is increasingly um, displaying more and more of what God is actually like in his character. So just a few verses, Philippians 1, 9, 9 to 11. The Apostle Paul says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that, notice this purpose clause, you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So why is Paul so eager for their love for Christ to grow and abound? I noted that, that important so that, that, that purpose clause there, so that they can approve what is excellent, or as the NAV has it, so that they can discern what is best. So we could say so that they can increasingly know how to say no to sin. And to be pure and blameless, that is, that they can be holy. And what is the overarching goal? You can see there in verse 11, it's to the praise um, to the glory and praise of God. So we could put it this way. Um, greater love, the, the goal then is greater love resulting in greater obedience. In other words, love for God and obedience are, are inextricably linked. That's one of the arguments I'm going to be making this morning. Love for God and obedience to God are inextricably linked. So if the way we live commends the gospel we profess, we will bring glory to God and provide a powerful witness to the truth of the gospel. Regeneration ultimately is about glorifying God. Uh, so second obedience, uh, so, sorry, second reason why obedience is the ultimate goal of discipling is, and I've already sort of alluded to this, obedience is important because it is a mark of true Christians. Obedience springs forth from those who truly love God. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, great, um, great pastor theologian of the Great Awakening era, 1740s and on, he thought deeply about what the true marks of conversion are uh, that are attended by a true work of the Spirit of God. So during the Great Awakening, you've got hundreds upon hundreds of people professing faith in Christ, and yet as the dust settled, and as the years went by, and as the Great Awakening sort of died down, 
Jonathan Edwards faced one of the um, sort of pastoral challenges of trying to discern who was truly saved and who was not. And he, if you're familiar with the title, The Religious Affections, that's one of his classic works. If you want a really good, uh, challenging, but very uh, fruitful read, try picking up The Religious Affections. He finally came to the conclusion at the end of the book that growth and personal holiness over time was the most universal and most reliable evidence of a true work of the Spirit of God in a person's life. It's actually quite, quite beautifully simple. Growth and personal holiness over time. That's the indicator of true regeneration, true life, and it's the same for us today. So an internal change then, um, that is a love for Christ, will manifest itself in an external change, greater obedience. Let's just consider a few verses. John uh, 14, 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So again, there's an inescapable link between our love for Christ and our obedience to Christ. Our love for Christ births in us a desire to please him, if you are truly regenerate, you truly have the Holy Spirit, your greatest desire will, will be, over time, to do Christ's will. Just consider 1 John 1, 5, and 6. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, many of you will remember that Pastor Jared preached this. Uh, he preached an excellent sermon on this, uh, Pastor Jared Harfield, last Sunday. That's one of the things that he stressed in that sermon. Well, if you claim to know Christ, and yet you continue to habitually walk in darkness, you are a liar. Now, that might sound harsh, but, but it's true. It's one of the things Pastor Jared stressed, and it's right there in the text. Um, the final test of Christianity, then, is a changed life marked by increasing personal holiness. Uh, one reason why, as disciples, we want to be encouraging personal holiness is that a true love for Christ, a growing, even incremental love for Christ, actually leads to an assurance of salvation for the believer. So it's actually very loving uh, to be um, encouraging personal holiness in our brothers and sisters. If someone is a Christian, they will obey God. So that's true. Um, they will obey God, and yet, just thinking about how the Lord uses means, part of your responsibility as a disciple is to help them grow in their obedience to God. So it's both ends. It's both ends. You might be thinking at this point, well, what's the point? If, if God, uh, if a true disciple will grow in obedience, if salvation is of the Lord anyways, which it is, why, why bother with, you know, striving towards holiness and encouraging holiness in other believers? Um... Well, it's true that God will cause his true children to, to bear a true fruit. 
And yet, as, as I've been stressing, God uses means. He uses means. He uses the means of his people. And this is part of the beauty of Christianity. We are to walk side by side and to strive together towards personal holy, holiness and greater obedience in our lives. Now, this could appear as, as a bit of a paradox then, if both those things are true. We recognize that true repentance and obedience is something that God alone can produce. I mean, around here, we, we, we like to stress, as the Bible does, that salvation is of the Lord. It is by His sovereign grace. And yet, like I've said, He encourages, or rather, He commands us to help encourage the holiness of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, you and I are the conduits of God's work in that person's life in many ways. So it shouldn't come as a surprise then that you're primarily helping to foster something in them that God has already promised to do. But that should also encourage us because their ultimate sanctification doesn't really come down to you. You get to be part of it. We get to be part of it. So the joy of discipling is seeing God accomplish his promised work um, through you, even in a small way. It's not doing something that God would not be able to do without you, of course. And that's an important nuance as well. Um, so, and, and as I said, uh, the, the ultimate goal is not behavior modification, but maturity in Christ. So if you just consider, just external behavior modification does not glorify God. It doesn't express a true love for Christ, and it doesn't lead to an assurance of salvation. It could lead to um, a person thinking that he or she is a Christian when they are not. It, it, that, that is perfectly possible. But a true assurance of salvation um, is downstream of growth in holiness and obedience. Uh, so that's sort of the first main point of, of, of this morning's lesson. The ultimate goal of obedience is, or, 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 or sorry, rather, the ultimate goal of discipleship is obedience. Now I want to just take maybe a minute or two just to um, make time for questions before I move on to the second point. People tracking with me? Any questions? What do you guys think? Maybe uh, no questions? Let's just look at, you got one there? Yeah, and ultimately we would, we, we would want to say that it actually can't be enforced it's it's it needs to be um encouraged it's very clear in the in the imperatives of scripture that we are to be growing in obedience and yet it's a mark that is downstream of regeneration but it is something that that we are we are um, called to encourage one another for sure let's maybe just look at a passage just to clarify some things here um, this isn't in my notes but it's it's an important passage to wrap our heads around when we consider god's law I think there can be some confusion in modern evangelicalism about the use of God's law and the goodness of God's law. Flip to Jeremiah 31. 
Jeremiah 31. How does this work? Jeremiah 31, many of you guys know this. This is the classic New Covenant passage, one of them in the Old Testament. So it's a a very sort of all-encompassing statement and promise of the, the New Covenant. Look at Jeremiah 31, verse 33. This is the Lord speaking. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So, so this, is, this is the first thing that God promises he will do under the new covenant. So, um, I, I mean, again, I think often when we hear the words law, commands, obedience, we can, well, hold on a sec. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Well, yes, of course it is. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And once we're saved, God gives us a new heart so that we want to obey him. You're not saved by your law keeping, but you want to obey God. And if you consider God's law, how is it summarized in the New Testament? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God's law is a good and beautiful thing. If you're familiar with uh, Psalm 119, uh, I used to find that psalm confusing because the psalmist is just going on and on and on about his love for God's law, his love for God's precepts and commands and principles. Well, that, read Psalm 119, and that is a mark, that, 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 that is um, the cry of a true believer right there in Psalm 119. You love God's law, not because you're justified by keeping it, but because you are justified uh, by faith in the one who has kept it, and now you want to obey God. Does that make sense? Let's move on to the second point. If there's any questions, again, I'm I'm hoping to give uh, more time. But the second point, then, is just more practically encouraging holiness in the disciple. How is it that we can encourage holiness in the life of someone we're discipling? Um, the Bible talks about several things that can, that, that, to start, the Bible uh, mentions several things that happen almost immediately, it is immediately, upon a person's conversion. So let's look up some of these verses real quick. There will be a little bit of flipping around, just uh, some, some verses here. John 5.24, John 5.24, and we're going to go to Mark after that. John 5.24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So Jesus says that the status of the person changes immediately at conversion. There's a change of outlook on life and a new hope in God's promise of salvation. That person has passed from death to life through faith in Christ. Flip to Mark 1, verse 8. Mark 1, verse 8. This is John the Baptist speaking. 
He says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Christ. So again, one of the things that happens upon conversion is, is a believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in the believer. As a result, the believer is much more convicted of sin. We, we could say even truly, in a biblical way, convicted of sin. And our consciences are made tender to God's law. Uh, flip to Mark 2, verse 5. Two verse five, many of you guys know the story. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So in conversion, the believer's sins are immediately forgiven. This is an immediate effect of conversion. And again, that truth becomes the source of a new optimism about life and a gratitude toward God alone. Um, I can just rattle off a few other verses here we're not going to go to, um, which demonstrate these truths. Ephesians 5, verse 8, if you're taking notes. Romans 6, 18. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. Uh, Romans 8, 13 and 14. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Galatians 5, 16 to 26. 1 John 1, 9. Hebrews 10, 12 to 14. So those verses um, speak of what happens to a person when, when someone is saved. So when a person is converted then, his or her identity changes. He is newly justified, newly converted. He is made a disciple of Christ. He no longer is what he once was. He now has a new status, a new life, a new joy in Christ. Paul says um, he or she is even a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. This does not mean, however, that uh, instantaneously and, and almost sort of magically our sins or our tendency to sin disappears right away. Even after we're Christians, the sinful nature still wars against us and we still need to war against it. So as Christians, though, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us increasingly defeat sin. And as I said, the heart, the heart posture towards God and his law has fundamentally changed. You've gone from a God-hater who hates God's law to a God-lover who loves God's law. That's what happens when you've been given a new heart. So I, I bring this up because as disciples, we can often sort of get this backwards and be surprised when we still see uh, bad habits and sin patterns in those that we're discipling, and perhaps even in ourselves. So we can't expect um, perfection in believers. We don't subscribe to attaining to perfection in this life. It's actually not biblical. So we should expect to see God's work, uh, God's spirit working effectively to, to change a person's desires and habits and cravings and so on. But it is an inc incremental thing. So the big word, the big fancy word that theologians use is progressive sanctification. Some of you guys are familiar with that term. 
progressive sanctification, sanctification being made more like Christ, being made holy, is a progressive thing. It's gradual and increasing, incremental conformity to Christ-likeness. So this change at times can be very um, uh, rapid and dramatic, or it could be slower. It can ebb and flow. But over time, this is, again, the mark of a true disciple. There's, there is evidence of a growing sanctification. So what we're looking for in a disciple then, and what we're, we're striving to encourage in one another, we could almost think of it as a moral strength or constitution. There's a moral strength or constitution. There, there's, a, there's an increasingly... Um, a strong posture to fight against sin and to want to grow in holiness. Just think about uh, Romans 5, 3, and 4. Just tells it, uh, Paul here tells us how Christian character is developed. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So in our hardships and struggles with sin, God is developing character in us. Again, this is God's, this is the goal. So why does character produce hope? Why does character produce hope? That's sort of the, the, the order of things there in Romans 5. Well, it's because as we increasingly see God's faithfulness in bringing us through hardship and trial, we learn to rely more and more on him. He's growing us in our ability even to enjoy his faithfulness towards us. So this in turn brings glory to God and provides assurance of salvation to the believer, as I've been trying to stress. So your goal then is to gently and lovingly work to help strengthen the moral character of the person you're discipling even so that on their own, they can begin to recognize the character and the hope that God is growing in them. It's actually a, a beautiful thing. Um, so very practically, and how, we, how, how do we encourage holiness in the lives of those we're trying to disciple? Well, first, just a few quick points. Uh, first and foremost, Pray that God would give you insight into their lives, into their struggles. We want to un- try to understand one another, their sin issues, and that God would grant you wisdom for how you can best help that person. Even praying, of course, that God would continue the good work in one another that he's promised to do. Uh, second, the Bible is the best diagnostic tool that you have to help that other person see the sin in their, in their life and yours. It always comes back to the Bible, the authority of God's word. Third, uh, don't shy away from sharing concerns you may have about various aspects of his or her life. So sometimes sin is very clear, and it is your job to confront your friend with the reality of what they were doing. So for example, you could, you know, if a person was... Um, before they were saved, a serial liar, and lying is still something that they are doing quite a bit, 
you're going to try to lovingly confront that person, you know, maybe by saying, do you understand that um, from Scripture that lying is sinful? Why do you continue to lie to your boss the way you do? Are you willing to change and stop living that way? Obviously, these conversations are not easy, but we want to lovingly try to have them. Um, as is often the case, uh, things, however, are not always crystal clear. So you might think that there's a sinful attitude behind some action, but you're not quite certain. I would say, uh, and it's not me, I think it's the scriptures point us towards the fact that as growing Christians, we want to be increasing and growing even in our ability to have those difficult conversations. When a person confronts you about their, um, your sin, their perception of things might be a little bit off, right? They could be wrong. But then even being, being able to grow in being able to communicate about these things in a charitable way, right? Instead of maybe getting immediately defensive. Um, so it is our responsibility then to have those hard con- conversations when um, it's warranted. So as, as we do this, however, it's important to remember that we don't ultimately know their motives, nor do we have a, a perfect picture of, of their, their life. Um, so in humility, we want to explain that God alone knows the state of their hearts, but from your perspective, you're concerned that there may be a sin issue um, at play. So then discuss with them whether they come to the same conclusion and as they are honest about their heart before God. Uh, as I said earlier, sometimes these things are not crystal clear. Um, their action would maybe be not necessarily sinful, but merely unwise from your perspective. So for example, a couple examples, uh, couples in a dating relationship. Um, spending too much time together alone, and they're tempting themselves sexually. Well, if that, if that becomes a habitual thing, the, the conversation needs to be had, right? We're talking about a dating relationship before um, a man and a woman are married. Perhaps they're spending too much, uh, just financially, there's, there's just not so wise decisions being made. Maybe this person spends lavishly on things that seem foolish, but it might not be immediately sinful. Again, if there's a concern there, that needs to be lovingly, um, that person needs to be lovingly challenged to take their, their thoughts, their, their, their motives and so on to the light of Scripture. Again, it comes back to the authority of God's Word. Um, so that's learning how to have those sometimes maybe awkward and uncomfortable conversations but again we want to be growing in in those things Uh, for to the extent that you do not shy away from holding uh, uh, sorry let me back up um my fourth point is that we ought not to shy away from holding ourselves out as an example. Now you might just, be, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that. You, um, you're not perfect. 
but believe it or not, and this is something we're going to circle back around to, there's actually quite a few verses in, in the New Testament that, that give, um, that, that commend us to do this as believers. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back around to that, holding your life out as an example. A fifth, try as much as possible to ensure that whoever you disciple is again under the authority of the local church. Um, and, and ideally, your own. I mean, I know that there's discipleship relationships happening in this church where you are discipling people in other churches, and that's great. Um, I would just say, if that person is not part of a church, they need to be. They, they really need to be. The Bible does not have categories for churchless Christians or for uh, YouTube Christians or any of that stuff. It's um, fundamental to biblical Christianity is being part of the local gathering, the local assembly. Um, I would say just as a caveat, what I'm not suggesting is that you should view yourself as the holiness police. Um, You know, you're not wanting to nitpick every detail of someone else's life. For some of you, there could be the temptation to exert high-handed control over someone in every detail of, of their life. That's not what the Bible's suggesting that's the, or, or commanding. So remember, this is a verse we looked at uh, a few weeks ago from Hebrews. Hebrews tells us to consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not exasperate or criticize each other to holiness. So there's a balance there, and it, it, it needs to come. Um, it comes over time, growing in wisdom as you mature as a Christian. So what about the, the, I said I'd circle back around to this topic, holiness in the discipler. Holiness in the discipler. Uh, just think about Jesus' own words, John thirteen fifteen. He said to his disciples, I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. That's when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. So Jesus modeled everything the disciples needed to know about holiness. He not only told them how to be holy, he showed them how to be holy. And in the same way, believe it or not, as disciples, we must also be holy in order to set an example to those whom we are discipling. So here's some, here's some passages. Some of you guys are familiar with them. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Paul could actually say... Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. That's the NIV. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Just think about that. Paul could actually have the confidence to say that. Listen, you can actually, you, you actually ought to see an example in me that you can follow, even as I follow Christ. Philippians uh, 3.17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This is the way we learn as believers. Um, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, 2 Timothy 1.13 
Paul says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So this is one of the the beautiful things about the Christian life. By God's design, we are given examples to follow. We're given examples to follow. And if you're maturing as a believer, you should not be ashamed to to say to someone that you're you're seeking to disciple, listen, you, you actually need to follow my example on this. If, if you are truly uh, walking, the, walking the walk, not just talking the talk. So these passages uh, all talk about Paul's example of the other believers. Uh, Paul expected others to follow his example. And this is not something that was unique to him just as an apostle. So Titus 2 verse 7, Paul tells Timothy to set an example for the younger men. Obviously, Timothy was a young pastor in this instance, but it still applies to all believers. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.12, again, he tells Timothy to set an example for the believers. So be an example to one another then. Is, it is the duty of all Christians. It is the duty of all Christians. This is one of the main ways that we learn um, to grow in, in holy, personal holiness and obedience is in seeing others who are more mature and older than us um, practice these things. Uh, being an example, of course, does not mean that we will always do the right thing. Even as disciples, we're still sinners. So the process of being made holy is still happening even in the disciples. So what it means then is when you do sin, even as, you know, you're, you're maybe an older, more mature Christian. You've got a couple of younger folks that look up to you. How do you handle um, sin when, when you actually sin and they see it? Do you just shrug it off and say, oh, yeah, no, 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 no big deal? Um, or is there true remorse and repentance there? Do you, do you make amends or do you hope that no one sees it? So, of course, this makes us vulnerable, but there's actually no better way for a young Christian to see how you handle sin, right? You, 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 again, you want to be an example in repentance. So just a summary uh, of today's lesson, and then I think there is going to be uh, a couple of minutes here for questions, if you have any. Just to summarize, growing in personal holiness is a primary goal for all true believers, Second, a faithful discipler will specifically encourage greater holiness and obedience to the Lord in any friend being discipled. And last, growing in holiness and obedience is essential for all Christians, disciple and discipler alike. It's a mark of true conversion, true faith, true discipleship. All right, we've got a few minutes here. Are there any questions? Please feel free. Yep. Yeah. You, you want me to read them out again? You want me to read the verses out again? Yeah. Uh, let me see if I can find them. From John 5.24, yeah. So I started with Ephesians 5, verse 8. 
Romans 6, 18. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. Romans 8, 13 to 14. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Galatians 5, 16 to 26. Romans 8, verse 1. I mean, I would say just all, the whole chapter of Romans. I've already cited some verses from there. First uh, John 1, 9. And Hebrews 10, 12 to 14. If you've missed some of those, uh, just come up and I can get those to you. Any other questions, guys? Yeah, so question about uh, that New Covenant passage from Jeremiah 31. So the verses after the verses that I shared say, verse 34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So what was the question again, Ethan? Yeah, good question. Is this talking about the church, the church as Israel, as it were? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I don't know if I'd want to phrase it in exactly that way. I mean, the New Covenant Church is Jew and Gentile, right? I mean, sometimes we'll be... We'll be um, charged with being what's called replacement theologians, right? Or replacement, you know, replacement Christians. Um, somehow the church has replaced Israel. Well, no, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all, all of Israel. He, he is the true Israel. He, he perfectly kept God's law. And now Jew and Gentile are saved through faith in Christ. So I think there's a sense in which what you're saying is true. I, I mean, I, I would want to put it this way. Um, again, th this is what God has promised to do in the new covenant for Jew and Gentile. And the heart change here is descriptive of the fact that um, many, many Israelites under the old covenant, they did not truly know God, right? They didn't truly know God. They didn't truly love God. Their hearts hadn't been changed. And I think the description here of being taught by God is is descriptive of, um, of that internal heart change that I was stressing, internal heart change. Does that make sense? Um, but again, I would just want to say in regards to the, like the replacement theology stuff, the New Testament is very clear that God's people is comprised of Jew and Gentile. So the way I like to put it is that it's not that the Jews have been replaced. I, instead of a replacement theology, I like to call it an inclusion theology. It's not that the Jews have been replaced, it's that the Gentiles have been included. So it's Jew and Gentile now, under the New Covenant. Um, Jen, maybe one more question?
Yeah, so deciphering the difference between deciphering a believer and, and deciphering your influence in the unbelieving world. So, I mean, I think, I think um, a lot of what I'm talking about here, a lot of, a, of what we're learning in this class is going to apply even to evangelistic relationships, right? You're sitting down with someone and you're trying to read the Bible one-on-one together. They're not saved, but they're very, uh, perhaps, intrigued by the scriptures. They want to know more. There's a hunger there. I mean, that's always very encouraging, right? Or maybe you're just trying to strike up those Christian conversations. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, deciphering the difference between the two is going to be this, this marked heart change. Is there true repentance and faith? And sometimes, I mean, because sometimes conversion, um, a true living faith is expressed over time, sometimes, you know, you're trying to, yeah, you're tr- you are trying to figure out, okay, is this person uh, an unbeliever? Or maybe they actually are a believer now. And even that, I think, sometimes needs, needs to be sort of meted out over time. I would say one of our challenges in modern evangelicalism is uh, the decisionism that has sort of been very common over the past couple of generations, right? Oh, this person made a decision for Christ. They came up, they prayed the prayer, they're good to go. And then, you know, you can, there's a very marked thing. Okay, they weren't saved, now they are. Well, sometimes it's not so cut and dry. Sometimes it'll take a few months, maybe even a little bit longer to be able to discern, okay, is there a change in this person? Is there a heart change? Is there a growing love for God and his law and so on? Um, I've got to leave it there because we're over time now. Uh, got questions? Again, feel free to come and chat. Let me pray and we can close. Heavenly Father, we can see that you are a good and faithful God. Father, even as we consider the old covenant, we recognize um, the natural inclination of our sinful hearts to be an idolatrous and adulterous people, to forsake even um, the marriage, as it were, that you have established between yourself and your people. And yet, Father, what a beautiful thing the new covenant is where you have taken away our hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh that now uh, love you and want to keep your law instead of uh, hate you and hate your law. So, Father, grow us in um, our holiness as a people here, even at this church. Uh, Grow us in our discipleship relationships, all for your glory and our joy. Prepare our hearts and minds even now for the main worship service. May you be honored and glorified in it and build up your people in love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.